Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, June 20th, 2016. We'll take the Aletheia out for a little bit this week. Not sure if we'll be able to get a whole week's worth of programming in. Next week, I'll be out Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, but back in studio Thursday uh, and on. Just going to get that out up front. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up our Bible and do the comparative work using sound biblical exegesis, a Christ-centered hermeneutic, and, uh, well, basic understanding of historic biblical Christian orthodoxy. Yeah, it's not like you can't go through the church fathers and read what the church has always believed, taught, and confessed to see if what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers Self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose small group curriculum we need to be studying instead of the Word of God to see if what they're saying actually squares with what God's Word says or if they're twisting it and generally teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach. That's what we do here at Fighting for the Faith, and uh, one of the reasons why there's so much weeping and gnashing of teeth regarding this program has to do with the fact that, well, we try to have a little bit of fun along the way as well. All right, let's uh, talk about what we're going to do today. Like I said, I'm back for this week-ish is the best way of putting it, and uh, I have to go out of town again, and as a result of it, I probably won't be able to get a full week's worth of programming in this week and will be absolutely out of pocket uh, you know, on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of next week. But I'll be back in studio on Thursday and Friday. So, you know, like I said you know, before, I went on vacation. You know, it, the, the month of June is just sketchy. Sketchy is the best way to put it. So, I'm in studio here. We're pulling the Alethea out. We'll do a little bit of a tour with her. You know, pick a couple of heretical uh, targets and uh, blast away and see what happens. But uh, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. And uh, we're going to begin uh, with a uh, a new woman that we're going to add into our mix from the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate. And uh, her name is Vonda. Vonda. 
And um, we're going to name her the nagging prophetess, and we're going to spell prophetess with an F, not a PH. So the nagging prophetess, we're going to listen to a recent video that she posted, literally where she is claiming God told her that the people who are, you know, benefiting off of her prophetic insights that aren't financially supporting her, that, you know, God has told her to, you know, rebuke them. Yeah, it's you just can't make this stuff up anymore. And uh, then we're going to listen to Jennifer LeClaire. We're going to stay under the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate Update Umbrella as uh, she has a um, conversation with Ryan uh, Johnson and uh, talking about, well, you know, what prophets should be doing. And uh, we're going to point out how both of them just like miss the obvious. Yeah, that's the best way I can put it. Apparently, there's a lot of prophets out there who are, well, they're they're engaging in you know prophetic ministry, but doing so in a way that they're committing, a, well, apparently an error. And uh, so, you know, yeah, you don't want, if you're going to go into prophetic ministry, you don't want to do it wrong. But kind of begs the question, you know, you know, when we get to it, what is the obvious thing that they're missing? And uh, then we're going to head over to Sean Bulls' church. Uh, we're not going to listen to Sean Bulls, but to one of the uh, teaching pastrix prophetesses, uh, Jennifer Toledo, as uh, we, she soaks in the oil of nonsense is the best way I can put this. And uh, then we'll end up hour number one with a uh, uh, vision casting leader update as we head over to Venue Church and listen to Tavner Smith explain to us a next-level mindset, yeah, a next-level mindset. If you don't have one of these, I mean, could change your life is the best way I could put it, but <clears throat> maybe not for the better. But, uh, and then, wow, uh, hour number two, it's now the summer season. You know, pro- the uh, heresy hurricane season has passed, and things generally slow down because heretics have a lot of money. They have the ability to go on vacation to exotic locations and things like that. Uh, we don't have that ability here, but anyway, what, what, it, what does that mean? Well, it's time to whip out the movie sermons. Yeah. And so at hour number two, we're heading over to the journey church in New York city as we, we listen to a sermon on the latest angry birds, um, movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I guess there's only one Angry Birds movie. They, they've just turned it into a movie franchise. It's moved from the small screen in the world of video games now to the big screen. And uh, we'll listen to Carrick Thomas as he, well, I can't say he preaches a sermon. It's more like engages in group anger management. Yeah, that's... Yeah, on the Angry Birds, the movie sermon review that we'll be doing. Anyway, that'll make up today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I hope that you make yourself comfortable. We have, obviously, a lot of ground that we need to cover. And uh, since we're going to begin with the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate Update, that requires us to do this. Oh, hallelujah. Get up right now. Listen to 
That's right. Who Baba Conda there, uh, Robert Tilton. And uh, what we're going to be listening to, it, well, this is a first appearance by Vonda, the nagging prophetess. Again, you got to spell prophetess, P-R-O-F-I-T-E-S-S. And, uh, well, apparently God the Holy Spirit told her to rebuke those who are not financially supporting her. You can't make this stuff up. So here's Vonda to explain. Hello everyone, Vonda here. Good to be with you. Thank you for sharing your time with me. I have another rebuke from the Holy Spirit. <laughs> An- another one? Wow. I'm going to have to go back through her YouTube channel to see if I can find those other ones. I mean, uh, there's nothing better than a good rebuke from the Holy Spirit via a prophetess. There are some people that God's been rebuking yeah. that have been on this channel for up to six years. I started ministering in 2010. It's 2016 now. Recently, God gave a call, um, a call to step up and to give love offerings to the prophets of the Lord that He wants to use this channel, this ministry, to be a blessing to. Right. Yeah, that that would include the prophetess, you know, Vonda. Yeah, God wants you to give love offerings to Vonda, folks. Uh, if you're not doing this, then, you know, well, consider yourself rebuked. And um, it was really disappointing because not many people from the subscribers list here on YouTube that have been eating and eating and eating God's word for years stepped up. Oh, that's just terrible. Oh, man. So, you know, here she's got subscribers on her YouTube channel. And who knew that when you subscribe that, you know, there's like a time limit. You know, as soon as you subscribe to Vonda's prophetic YouTube channel, that uh, God the Holy Spirit expects that after a certain amount of time, you need to be sending in love offerings to Vonda. Otherwise, you're going to get a rebuke from God the Holy Spirit. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. Wow, this is quite the way of doing fundraising, you know. And, um... I'm here with a word from the Lord for you, okay. and God is here to rebuke you again. Uh, you're running your mouth. Uh-huh. By the way, I, I've only recently subscribed to Vonda's channel, um, but I don't really plan on being edified by it. No, it's more or less I'm going to be looking for segments for fighting for the faith. You're lying on the Holy Spirit. Yeah. yeah. You're robbing God. Okay. You're being stingy, you're being cheap with your money, and you're upset because the Holy Spirit is um, taking the pacifier out of your mouth through this show. Uh, (laughs) Wow, yeah, okay, so all you spiritual babies out there just had your pacifier taken out by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, because you're not sending in love offerings to Vonda. Right, this is how God operates. Everybody knows that, right? You've been sucking on this show like a little baby. You've had your little pacifier in your mouth. You've been all happy to get all the words and the revelation and stuff, but you don't want to sacrifice anything. But there are many people out there that are whining and complaining, and you're accusing me of falsely, um, uh, of just being a prophet just for money. (laughs) Right, a, a prophet for profit. Actually, it's funny because Scripture talks about people like you, Vonda, And in the book of Jude, it talks about, well, those false prophets who are like Balaam. Yeah, read the story of Balaam in the Old Testament. He was a prophet for prophet, if you would. He was paid to prophesy against Israel, and God actually showed up and said, yeah, you're not going to say nothing 
except for what I tell you to say. And so he was paid handsomely to rebuke and prophesy against Israel, and he couldn't do it. He was later, you know, um, executed. But the idea here is that uh, in the, the book of Jude, there are three major prototypes of false teachers. Uh, those who fall in the way of Cain, yeah, Cain being uh, a guy who has no faith but goes through all the religious motions, yeah. Uh, and uh, then you have uh, the uh, Balaam, the prophet for prophet, which is really what we see here and hearing here with Vonda, a prophetess for prophet, right? And uh, and then the last is Korah's rebellion, this rebellion against authority and God-given uh, you know, offices within the church, that would be another example of uh, another prototype of false teacher. They're all listed for us in the book of Jude. Uh, and so fascinating here, um, and I believe Peter in Second Peter also mentions Balaam. So yeah, uh, Vonda, God the Holy Spirit is not telling you to rebuke those who are not financially supporting you. And the reason for that is actually quite simple. You are a false prophet. You teach false doctrine. You're not really a true prophetess. And so God, the Holy Spirit, yeah, is not actually rebuking anybody through you. You, What you're doing here is taking God's name in vain. You're actually, well, blaspheming. And we'll prove it here uh, when she opens up the Bible to, d- d- to demonstrate that uh, this, re- you know, what God, the Holy Spirit is apparently telling her to tell people or rebuking them by not financially supporting her, you know, just for material gain. And that's hilarious to me. But not long ago, I gave you a word from the Lord. The Lord told me that just as Elijah told me to tell you, just as Elijah had every right to command that widow to give me your last bit of oil, give me your last bit of flour, go and make me a cake of bread, give it to me first. Okay, that's when she got her miracle because she was ready just to die. So she got her miracle and because she gave to the prophet of the Lord, because not only did she give to the prophet of the Lord, but she gave her last bit of food. She ignored herself, ignored her need, didn't necessarily see how she was going to gain anything from it. But she gave because the prophet said to give her the food, give him the food, and she did. And when she did, we all know what happened. That's when the miracle came forth. What was the miracle? The miracle was that her life would be saved. Uh, yeah, well, it's like a, listening to a dripping faucet. All right, um, by the way, what she just did there proves beyond a shadow of a doubt she's a false prophet because... She claimed that God the Holy Spirit told her to use this story as a reference point for why you need to be sending love offerings to her. If you have your Bible, open up to 1 Kings chapter 17, and we'll look at verse 8. That's where we'll begin. And here's what it says. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, rise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. Okay, so the command to feed Elijah has already come to the widow by the time Elijah gets the word because, yeah, he's already commanded, God's already commanded um, uh, this widow to do that. Just important note if you're, if you're engaging in sound exegesis. So Elijah rose, went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel so that I might drink. And as she was going to bring it, He called to her and said, And bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. 
And she said, well, as Yahweh, your God, lives, not her God, but your God, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little uh, oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks so that I might go and prepare it for myself and my son so that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, do not fear and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. Afterwards, make something for yourself and your son for... Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that Yahweh sends rain on the earth. And so the idea here is is that the promise was made to the widow before she ever went and prepared any of the oil or the or the flour or any of that stuff to make a, a cake. Yeah, the promise was given. And so when Vonda here says, well, the Holy Spirit told her to rebuke you and remind you that the prophet had the right to demand of the woman that she first give everything she has before he, uh, before he blessed her. Wrong. The scriptures make it clear the promise that the oil and the flour would not run out comes before any obedience on the part of the widow of Zarephath. And the promise is sure and certain. So, yeah, it, I hear this text being abused all the time, but those who abuse it to turn it into a tithing text or a text that's supposed to show you that you've got to give down to your last nubbins before God's going to bless you, or you got to support the prophet or the prophetess or the, uh, you know, the vision casting leader first before you'll get a blessing. Mm -mm. The promise was given before there was any obedience. Yeah. And God's word always does what God's word does. And in other words, this woman didn't earn the blessing or the promise. The promise was given before she did anything. This, by the way, proves that Vonda is no prophetess, but she is a prophetess with an F, not a PH. How did her life get saved? Well, her life got saved because she had oil that never ran out, and she had flour that never was emptied. And so she lived through the hard times, and it was because she obeyed the voice of the Lord. Wrong. She lived through the hard times because God gave a promise to her, and he kept his promise. It was because she had a heart for the man of God more than she had a heart for herself. Wrong again. Yeah, you sure God the Holy Spirit speaking to you? Because you don't seem to be able to handle his word correctly at all. Aren't you hearing his voice inside of your head or heart or wherever you think you're hearing it, rebuking you for twisting his word? You should be if you're hearing from the Holy Spirit, you know. It's because she had faith. Based on what the man of God said, go make me my bread first. She obeyed. She Yeah, no, no, no. Because Elijah said, for the Lord says, the flour will not run out. The oil will not run out. Yeah, so that's what the Lord said. He did it and she got her blessing. Well, what was her blessing? Well, now we know her blessing was to live life. She could eat and she could live and she could not die like everyone else that was dying. And so there's many of you, how does that compare to you? How does that, how's that a rebuke for me? How does that, uh, you know, correct me with what I'm saying? Well, many of you, not all of you, but many of you out there are saying, well, if you were a true prophet, how dare you? Shame on you to keep this two-week window from us from when the war will come because you... Two-week window from when the war will come. 
Uh-huh. Are you related to William Tapley? You want $25 a month subscription for private releases on Facebook page. Well, you know what? God told you months ago that your miracle could depend on you giving to support the prophets. Oh, yeah, yeah. Your miracle depends on whether or not you're going to send money into Vonda. And she knows she's got the inside skinny from the Holy Spirit on when the destruction's going to come. And and if you don't send her the 25 bucks now, you'll never know. You won't have the heads up that you need regarding, you know, the destruction that the Holy Spirit has declared is supposed to happen really soon, too, you know. Just unbelievable. Yeah, what's unbelievable is that anybody thinks that this is from God, the Holy Spirit, at all. Wow. Vonda, the nagging prophetess. Yeah, that's her first appearance and probably not her last here at Fighting for the Faith. Moving along, we're still under the uh, general umbrella of the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate. And we're heading over to Jennifer LeClaire's podcast that she does for Charisma Magazine. The name of it is Walking in the Spirit. And she recently interviewed Ryan Johnson, special guest there, uh, you know, to talk about walking in the spirit. And let's just put it this way. Uh, both of them seem to be oblivious to the obvious is a good way to put it. Here I'll let them explain and point it out along the way. Here is Jennifer LeClaire. Hi, it's Jennifer LeClaire, Senior Editor of Charisma Magazine, Director of the Awakening House of Prayer in South Florida, and the author of The Making of a Prophet. And I'm here today with my good friend Ryan Johnson, and he operates in prophetic ministry in a profound level and has what I believe... Not just any level, a profound level, yeah. What I believe is a very balanced, stable, uh, not fearful but cautious, just wanting to stick close, plumb line to the Word of God, which I really appreciate because, as you all know... There's a lot of goofy stuff out there in the prophetic, and so... <laughs> yeah, like, I would argue that all of the prophetic uh, is goofy, and it's not even biblical. Mm, yeah, I have yet to see a real prophet or prophetess. And so, Ryan, I want to thank you, first of all, for taking the time. We're here in North Florida at a conference just laboring together for revival. But thank you for taking some time out to talk with me. Uh, thank you so much for allowing me and to be a part of your ministry and what you guys are doing. It's an honor. Amen. So let me ask you a broad question, and, and you know we've done this before. We did a whole series of shows for 365 Prophetic, but what do you see as the function of a modern-day prophet? A lot of people look to the Old Testament, which there are some, I believe, transfers from the Old. There's some, some crossover, but a lot of prophets, I believe, are operating out of an Old Testament paradigm. So what is the function of a New Testament prophet? <laughs> okay, now I, I, <clears throat> we're going to have to start to ease into the obvious here. All right, so a prophet is somebody who speaks on behalf of God. The word of the Lord comes to the prophet. The prophet then you know, writes down, memorizes, or some way of remembers what that word was, and then goes and speaks, and the person says, thus saith the Lord. Right now, if God wants the prophet to do something different or, you know, to, you know, do something, you know, that's a little out of the box or whatever, the Lord tells the prophet to do it. You know, I think about uh, one of the Old Testament prophets who, well, did some prophesying for some time uh, without any clothes on. Okay. And God told that prophet to do that. 
Okay, so you, you kind of get the idea here is, is that being a prophet is really simple. God comes to you and speaks his word and gives you specific commandments or instructions about whom to speak to or what to say. You then go and do what God says. It's pretty straightforward. You know, it's practically foolproof. And yeah, so foolproof that, you know, um, anybody who needs instructions on how to be a prophet or needs, well, to be reminded that they're lacking in their prophetic ministry, that doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, you get what I'm saying. We continue. Prophet. It still comes back to the edification and the identity of that, what you're building up. Where are you directing people in the purpose of their identity from the perspective of the Father? Uh, (laughs) What was that sentence? Edifying people in the perspective of their identity from the – what? What are you talking about? It, one of the things that happens is when we just come in and we plow, but we don't teach people how to build back up and instruct them, we kind of leave them wounded in a lot of ways. Now, why would the word of the Lord come to somebody in such a way as to wound them with, you know, to tear down without building up? I mean, if these prophets are really hearing from the Lord, don't you think the Lord would say, now here, I got to explain this to you. I want you to go and I want you to prophetically tear down, but then I want you to teach and build up. And here's what I want you to say first. Here's what I want you to say second. Got it? Got good. Got Now go, right? Why would real prophets need instructions from Ryan and um, Jennifer LeClaire on, you know, rightly prophesying if they're hearing from God? Is God not capable of instructing them as to what they're supposed to say why do we need these two to you know kind of fill in the missing data that god apparently forgot to give you know ways and so i believe the identity of what god has for prophets of this day and time not only are they working with the gift of prophecy for his edification but one of the things that i always say and i said this to you one time before is a prophet will have three things about their word that will often be destructive constructive and instructive Uh and what i mean by that is if there's something that has to come about in correction it will be very destructive in nature that you know you have to stop this they have to tear the kind of like vonda's rebuke for not sending her love offerings right that was very destructive indeed to tear this down but a true authentic prophet is always going to rebuild so there's a construction process of that word that's been released but where i see a lot of people make a mistake is in the lack of the instruction. Yeah, uh, how does somebody who's actually hearing from God the Holy Spirit prophetically forgetting to in well, forgetting part of the message, you know what I'm saying? It doesn't make any sense. Even if we come into a place and I release a word that is going to tear down strongholds or tear down sin, whatever the case may be, and I build that back up but I don't leave that person in their identity and what they're supposed to do with that. It kind of leaves them in a haphazard structure of, okay, I need to stop doing this, and this is how I build it back, but what do I do from here? And that's one of the things I see, and that's one of the big things with the doom and gloom 
type people. They come in, this is going to happen, we need to do this. But it's not very instructive in what we need to do. So are you saying they're false prophets? Because if God you know, was speaking to them about doom and gloom, and you're saying, well, they're making a mistake by not engaging in the instructive, are you saying they're not hearing from God? Because don't you think if God wanted them to also instruct that he would have made that clear to them before they started opening their mouths? You know what I'm saying? Do. So it's one of those things that I see it especially in what Paul did with the relationship with Timothy. Even though Paul was an apostle, we know that. But there was a prophetic edge to Paul in that. But we see it in the relationship with John and Simon Peter. And we know that ultimately the greatest prophet to model yourself after is not the great people before you. It's Jesus. Yes. And Jesus, when you when you went in, clearing of the temple, that was destructive. That was, but he had a constructive and an instruction about it. And that was his message. It's not that he was tearing down things for the sake of tearing it down. He was trying to teach them how to build up, but release people in the identity of a kingdom perspective. So Jesus was trying to release people in the identity of a kingdom perspective. I have no idea what that sentence actually means, but I mean, wow. I mean, that's so if you're going to model yourself after any prophet, you know, you should model yourself after Jesus. Uh huh. Again, uh, being a prophet, I mean, isn't it as, as simple as, well, I'm hearing God speak and he told me to say this. Here's the entirety of what I'm supposed to tell you. And thus saith the Lord, right? Isn't that how that works? How is it that we have all these people who are erroneously modeling themselves off the wrong prophets, uh, not Jesus, and erroneously, you know, like leaving out the entire instruction section of the prophecies that they're supposed to be giving? If they're hearing from God and then conveying what they're hearing directly from God, um, how can you say, well, hey, you missed a part? Well, did God tell you whether or not that part was missing or not? You know, this is just, yeah. Again, uh, Ryan and uh, Jennifer LeClaire here seem to be oblivious to the obvious is the kind of way I put it. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard here on Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. Well, we, we've uh, got a little bit more prophetic holy orders with uh, Jennifer Toledo from Sean Bowles' church and then Tabner Smith, the vision casting leader. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss him. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Presents 
Church Day Select. Hey guys, it's Rex here. I know that you've all been hearing about Stephen Furtick's latest book, Greater. Well, I took the time to check it out, and I have to say that I was greatly underwhelmed. For example, in this book he talks about Elisha burning his plows in order to follow Elijah. For some reason, Furtick then asked us to do the same. Uh Uh-huh, right. Furtick only gave you half the story. Where in your book does it tell everyone to sacrifice their oxen and cook their carcasses over your burning plows, Furtick? Nowhere. That's why I'm taking it one step further with my new book, Greater Than or Equal To. You think Furtick's book was bad? Well, my book will do it better, better. I'm not a wimp like Furtick. I do it all. That's right. Not only did I burn my plows like Elisha, but I took my oxen and I sacrificed them with my bare hands. I moved on from that, and I'm now living it up like John the Baptist. I wear a camel's hair jacket with my Bible pants and eat locusts with wild honey. I added some chipotle sauce for flavor. I I guess it worked. Anyway, got another question for you, Furtick. Ever heard of Hosea? Well, you conveniently skipped the whole part about marrying a prostitute. Well, I did it. On top of that, I'm cooking the locusts tonight for my new wife. Just like Ezekiel. I'm cooking my food over poop. It's so awesome. So watch out, Furtick. Greater than or equal to is way better than your book, you pansy. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, Our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. 
warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to be able to identify those prophets for profit who fall under the error of Balaam and that were warned about in the New Testament. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and the world. You can partner with us. That's right. It's a partnership. Uh, we do the hard work of doing the research, putting the programs together, and uh, you know, producing them, recording them, and then getting them out and distributing them. And you partner with us by helping us be able to meet our needs, pay our bills. And uh, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute well an amount that you get to choose. That's right. There's four ranks in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. Gunner's Mate, $24.95 a month. Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. These, this is a great way to support us, by the way. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, we're still going to do some prophetic holy order stuff. Well, let's go ahead and play some more music just to kind of get into it. Here we go. Down at an English fair, one evening I was there. When I heard a showman shouting underneath the flare. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. There they are, standing in a row. Big one, small one, some as big as your head. Give them a twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the chairman said. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. Every ball you throw will make me rich. There stands me wife, the idol of me life, singing roly bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Singing roly bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Singing roll a bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Roll a bowl a ball, roll a bowl a ball. Singing roll a bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Yeah, that's right. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. So we're heading over to Sean Bulls's church. Expression 58. Expression 58. I'm not even sure what that means. And we're going to be listening to one of the teaching prophetesses there. Her name is Jennifer Toledo. And I think this is a great example of somebody, well, soaking in the oil of nonsense. Here we go. So we're going to jump in uh, this morning. Uh, <clears throat> we're going to be in First Peter chapter 2, if you want to kind of get ready. We're not going to get there quite yet till a little bit more down uh, a little bit later. But that's where we're going to be, First Peter chapter 2. Um, a few weeks ago, we, ta- we took a couple weeks and we talked about the Beatitudes. Yeah. And in, in talking about the Beatitudes, you know, really looking at how kingdom people live. But the part that really stuck out to me was that the, at the end, after the Beatitudes, it talks about how we're called to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth, right? Right? That was zero response. I mean, not even like one person with me. Okay. Are we tracking? Well, let me check the text here. So uh, Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, uh, it says in uh, verse 2, opened his mouth and taught his disciples, saying, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how is how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Do nor do people light a lamp, put it under a basket, on a but put it on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All right. Now, so the light of the world thing, okay, that Jesus is referring to, what is the light? The light is our good works as Christians, which of course begs the question, well, how does the Bible, how do scriptures, well, how do they describe, define a good work? Good works ultimately come down to obeying the Ten Commandments. And that means not just what you don't do, but also what you do. And a good way to look at that would be to look at the, like the back end of the epistle to the Ephesians, right? And the good works are laid out in the different vocations that we're in as husband, as wife, as father, mother, employer, employee. I say that because slave and master, that, you know, you know we, we, we don't have slavery in the United States or in Western civilization, although slavery still exists in the world, the idea then being is that uh, we glorify God and do our good works in the vocations that God has put us into. So back in the day, uh, slaves who didn't own themselves, who were Christians, and Christianity very early on uh, you know, really took off among the lower classes and the slave class in, uh, in the Roman Empire. This is a fact of history. So how does a slave do good works? I mean, well, answer, slaves obey your masters. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. These are our good works. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says our good works are a light to the world. All right, so we did a little bit of biblical exegesis with some cross-reference work here. We have a generally good idea of what's going on in the in the text that she's referencing. Let's see where Jennifer Toledo goes with this. Thank you, thank you. Um, I'm like, right. Um, this is who we are. And there's something about this that has just so stuck with me. I haven't been able to shake it. And, and I'm just going to, I wanted to share a little bit from my heart this morning. What I, yeah, I not interested in hearing anything from your heart. Yeah. No, whatever's in your heart that, yeah, no God in the Bible and Jesus says that it's out of the heart that comes all kinds of sin and muck and stuff. And, uh, and you know, the heart is deceitfully wicked. You know, I think of passages like that. So when a pastor or a prophetess stands up and says, I want to share what's on my heart, 
Run away. Yeah, nothing nothing good is going to happen next. Morning, what I really feel like God is saying to us, but I want to just read that part. It's Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's right. See your what? Your good works. That's the reference to the light. Got it? There's just something in this that's just... I haven't been able to escape, and I feel like God is is saying something to us. Mm-hmm. What do you think God's saying? Us. I believe that E58 is destined to be a brilliant light. E58, expression 58. Not the church, but their specific, unique congregation. Yeah. Okay, E58, the home of Sean Bowles, the... The uh, the guy who gives words of knowledge using a smartphone, right? Yeah. A city on a hill. Yeah. A community, a people gathered that hold light. Now, remember, this is when Jesus is talking about this. This is pre-electricity, okay? Right. So yeah. when he's talking about light, he's he's talking about flame, well, yeah, that's true. He wasn't talking about LEDs or compact fluorescence or, you know, any of those types of things. No, he, clearly he was talking about flames, yeah. We're called to be flame, fire. He's talking about lamps. That was their context. People use lamps. He's talking about a wick soaking in oil. Yeah, see, this is... <laughs> You're putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable here, uh, Jennifer. See, here's the point. When Jesus says, you're the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, that's the metaphor, all right? That, that he, he, Jesus is using an analogy. So you, you, the question is, what is the analogy pointing to? What is its reference that it's referencing? The, see, the thing is, you're exegeting the analogy and the metaphor Jesus said good works are, that's the thing that the metaphor is pointing to, are, are good works. So, yeah, you're, you're, you're really kind of missing the whole point here. It doesn't matter if it's a flame, a halogen bulb, LED, or, you know, any other type of thing like that. That's not the point. That's the metaphor. The reality is the good works. Bill. You see, a lamp cannot create its own fire, its own light. A lamp can only hold it. A lamp can only hold light, can only stay soaking in the oil. Right? That's our job, to stay soaking in the oil. The oil of his... Yeah. Are, are, you, are you soaking in the oil? Yeah. I mean, that is not what Jesus was talking about. <laughs> oh, man, this is a mess. The oil of his spirit, the oil of his presence. And from that place, we, we carry his light. We reflect his light. We hold his light. And 
there's something about this that keeps stirring in me. It's this concept of a city on a hill because we were talking about this isn't just one person's light. This is, you're not a city on a hill with one light. This is all of us being lit, all of us learning how to carry the presence and linking together that makes our light so brilliant, so bright that it penetrates darkness for so far. You see, there's something he's calling us to do. I mean, it's, and you hear it in Matthew 5. Um, yeah, it's good works. Hello? <laughs> uh, just absurd. I mean, it's like she's missing the forest because of a tree here, you know? Um, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Right. You just read it. I mean, I feel like we need to play that game. You know, you know when I was a kid, my, you know, my, my babysitters and, you know, those who were older than me, they like to play the game where they would hide something and you had to go find it and they go, Oh, you're cold. No, oh, now you're freezing. Oh, you're getting warmer. Oh, you're burning hot. Yeah, yeah. We need to play that game with uh, Jennifer here because right now she just read it. And it's like, you're burning hot, Jennifer. You just said it. Good works. That's the point. That's the thing that Jesus is talking about. The metaphor of light is not the point. It's the good works. Is in heaven. What does it look like when, when you begin to let your light shine and I begin to let my light shine for real before others? Yeah, clearly she's not one of the brighter bulbs when it comes to exegesis. <clears throat> Pun intended. This whole concept, I'm just going to let my, you know, this little light of mine in my closet. Like, no, this little light of yours is supposed to be in a really scary, vulnerable place on top of a hill. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> That's what Jesus was saying, man. Yeah, you know, you need to take your 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 flame and you need to put it in a scary, vulnerable place on a hill. <laughs> oh, man, this is ridiculous. The hill for everybody to watch. You doing your good works. This isn't coming from pride. This isn't coming from. Okay. Wow. She's, she's burning up now. She's, she's, she's in the ballpark. It has something to do with good works. Right. Coming from, you know, Ooh, look at me. It's going to actually take great humility and courage and surrender to do this. What are you talking about? To allow ourselves, allow the world to watch our lives, to put the good news on display, to put our good deeds on display for the world to see. Right. I mean, this, all you got to do is live your life. I mean, you got a job out in the secular world, your good works are going to shine. How can they not? Right. We continue. See why? Because what happens when that light goes into the darkness? It shifts everything. You see, we, I think sometimes we make darkness like it's this big, scary thing. Darkness is simply the absence of light. Okay. Yeah. The only reason something's dark is because the light is not there. Right. Now, I don't know what happens at your house, but when I turn my light switch on, there's not like this epic bloody battle between darkness and light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Same thing in my house, yeah, even in North Dakota. Right? There is no battle. Like, it's just gone. It, ha- it just, it doesn't even exist. Darkness doesn't exist when light is present. 
There's no bloody battle. Like it's just gone. Darkness is simply the absence of light. Yet we are the light. What would happen if, you know, one third of the planet that professes to be Christians, one third, AKA everybody go home and just get two people saved and we're done. Right? Like it's all we got to do. One third of the planet who professes to be Christians actually started letting their light shine. So there's a third of the planet, you know, who are Christians and they don't do a single good work. If only they would just let their light shine. They're too busy doing any good works. James says that faith without works is dead. So, I mean, can you point me to those Christians who have zero good works? I'd like to meet those people. There is no darkness. Darkness has to surrender. It just, it has to go away when light's present. Right. Yeah. And so this is what I feel like God is, is really calling us to do. Good works, you know, like husbands loving your wives as Christ has loved the church. Yeah, that's an important thing right there. Uh huh. Or wives submitting to your husbands, children obeying your parents, slaves obeying your masters, and masters not treating your your slaves harshly. Yeah, I think employer employees here, right? Yeah. We're called to be the light, yes, but even more, we're called to be the light together. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of darkness, very little light in this attempt at exegesis on the part of Jennifer Toledo. I think you get the point. I mean, this is bizarre, absolutely bizarre. It's like, I don't even think she knows what she's talking about because clearly she's not even be, she's not even qualified, in fact, not only is she not qualified, she's forbidden by Scripture to be doing the thing that she's doing right now that we're actually listening to. Strange, indeed. Yeah, it's an example of the blind leading the blind or the dark leading the darkness into the dark. Right, yeah, that's how that works. All right, moving along, we have a vision casting leader update, so that requires us to do this.
tonight's the night I'm gonna take the word and twist it So we're heading over to Venue Church, and Tavner Smith, this is a guy who, oh man, I <laughs> let's just put it this way. He is a firm disciple of Stephen Furtick and Perry Noble and guys like that, and wow, the guy has no clue whatsoever how to handle a biblical text, and uh, he's, uh, well, quite the astute Narsajit himself. We're going to be learning from Tavner about how to have a next-level mindset. Yeah, if you've never had one of those next-level mindsets, well, then you're in for a treat because this will be quite the teaching. It won't be what the Bible teaches, but it'll be quite the teaching. Here's Tavner Smith to explain. Hey, guys. Listen, I am so excited about this brand-new series, We Are That Church. They is that church. Okay, yeah. I've been uh, looking in my Bible at the book of Acts, which is a story of the first church that started after Jesus Christ ascended from the earth and gave his disciples the Holy Spirit to carry with them and make his name famous. And as I'm reading about it, yeah, I thought Acts was how the church, not a church, got started. See the difference there? Yeah, it's kind of important. About it, one of the first things that happened is Peter preached the message of Pentecost, and in one day, 3,000 people came to know Christ and got baptized in one day. And then, right after that, there's a verse I want to read in chapter 2, verse 46. It says this It says, They worshiped together at the temple each day, they met in homes for the Lord's Supper, they shared their meals with great joy and generosity, yeah. and all the while they praised God, enjoying the goodwill of all the people. Now listen to this. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Man, we are going to find some great things through the book of Acts in this series that God did through his first church. Yeah, again, the the book of Acts is about the growth of the church, not a specific congregation. You see what I'm saying here? And here's what this series is about. 
The reason he was able to do all the great things we're going to read about is because frequently throughout the book, it talks about how each and every person in that church was of the same mind. Uh, See, the only way God can work is, well, if you're of the same mind with other people. If you're not of the same mind, well, you know, God's hands are tied and he can't work. Right. Says no biblical text anywhere. Mind. They were all rallied around the same vision. Some places it says they spoke the same language. They talked about the same stuff. They believed in the same mission. Really, really uh, uh, where is the great mission and vision statement given for this first church in the book of Acts? I, I'm a little curious. Isn't it weird that Tavner Smith thinks the book of Acts is about a particular megachurch. Apparently it was a multi-site before technology made that possible. And everybody was united around the vision uh-huh, and, and the mission for that multi-site church. <laughs> wow. They were all on board with the same goal. And it was not about themselves. It was about building his church and making his name famous. Well, guess what? I believe that we are that church. We are. Yeah, see, venue, not, not, you know, the church in general, not the church, but a church called Venue Church is that church. Right, yeah, okay. We are that church in the, two, in the year of the 2000s, and we are going to bring a fresh revival, a fresh sound, a fresh view of the name that is lifted above all names to people when they watch what has happened at Venue Church. If we're going to do that, we all have to be speaking the same language. We- yeah, they, they want to bring a fresh revival there at Venue. Yeah, it, it's ground zero for like the whole 2000s is, is venue church. Yeah, and you, if you want to be a part of it, then you got to be united behind Tavner's vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Language. We all have to be rallied around the same vision, and we all have to be believing for the same thing. Yeah, otherwise, you know, if you're not all believing for the same thing and united around the same vision, well, God's hands are tied and you can't do nothing, you know. That's what this series is going to be about. And today I wanted to intro it by sharing a message I've already preached to you before. As I was praying about this and I was watching this message back for myself, I just felt like it was a key moment that everybody who has heard it before and all the new people who have never heard it, it was a key moment that we needed to rally around this vision once again. So I thought there was no better way than to start this series off really strong by sharing a message that I preached called Here We Grow. So I hope you enjoy it, and I'll be back to talk to you soon. Adam, roll that footage. And it made me begin to think about people, about us, about you and me, because a lot of people get to a place in their life that they call here. Uh, it's something that... Yeah, have you gotten to the place in your life that you call here? Yeah, I mean, that could, that could be bad, I think. It's something that they dreamed about. It's something that they hoped for. It's something that they wanted. And then when they get there, a lot of times they are satisfied. They want to stay there. They get comfortable. They get in their comfort zone. And, and they just live their entire life or years of their life in this one little area. It reminded me of a story in the Bible about a guy named Abraham. 
And Abraham, God came to him and said, I want you to go. He didn't even tell him where. He just said, go. Abraham said, where? He said, don't worry about that. I'll tell you when you're getting close. I want you to pay. What? <laughs> where is that in the book of Genesis? Where am I going? I'll, don't worry about it, Abraham. We're going to play we're going to play the game of kind of hot cold freezing warm. Yeah, so Abraham he he starts heading north out of Ur of the Chaldees and God goes, "Oh, you're getting cold. You're getting oh, now you're freezing." And and so Abraham goes, "Well, you won't tell me where I'm supposed to go. Try a different direction, Abraham. Okay, I'll I'll try west." Well, you're you're kind of getting warmer, but man, it's still cold outside. All right, south, southwest. Oh, now, now you're really getting warm. Oh, you're getting hot. Oh, keep going that way. <laughs> what on earth? So I want you to pack up your family and move. And Abraham got going and he had a, his nephew with him named Lot. And their family grew so big that they had to split up and part ways. And, and here's what, what, what caught my, my attention was this. If you read that story, you'll read later about how Abraham became super successful and how Lot had to be rescued from the town of Sodom and Gomorrah that God was destroying. What is the difference? Two people in the same family on the same mission, they split up. What is the difference? Why was Abraham so successful and Lot ended up almost being destroyed in a town? Do you know why? Um, no, I, I don't. Why? There's something that I noticed. It's that Lot chose to build a house in a season of his life he was meant to set up a tent. <laughs> oh, finally, the mystery is solved. I mean, exegetes for years have been racking their brain on this one. And finally, God has revealed to Tabner Smith the reason why things went so poorly for Lot is that he wanted to build a house during a tent-dwelling season. <laughs> you just can't make this stuff up. What do you mean, Pastor Tabner? If you read the story, Abraham, he sets up a camp. Yeah, he sets yeah. tents up because they were mobile, because he knew that God is moving me and that even though I'm going to be here for a season, I'm not going to be here forever. And so I am not going to build a house in a place where I'm supposed to only set up a tent and be ready when God says to move. Lot, on the other hand. Yeah, don't you think that's kind of odd? I mean, that no other exegete has ever... I mean, ever really thought this way until you came along. I mean, no biblical text actually teaches this doctrine. Can't find it in the writings of the church fathers. And um, this is a new one. Uh, yeah, the the great, yeah, don't build a house during a tw tent dwelling season doctrine. Right. On the other hand, said, you know what? This place looks kind of comfy. I'm going to build a house no matter what God wants me to do. And he built a house in the wrong town. And him building the house in the wrong town almost cost him his life. It did cost him his wife's life. And it messed. Yeah, that if you build a house during a tent dwelling season, yeah, you, you, you could die. 
Right. Messed things up for him. And today I just want to talk to you because I want you to know that as far as God has brought venue to this point, venue being us, uh, we, the church, venue, not the building, not the title. The church is not a building, it's the people. I'm talking about us. As far as God has brought venue, us, the people, and venue, the organization, I don't want us to build a house in a place where God only wanted us to set up a tent because he's not done. I don't want... Right, yeah. Wow, that's some practical preaching right there, yeah. So, I mean, the more important question to be asking yourself right now is, um, have you built a house when you should be dwelling in a tent? I mean, because, you know, if you haven't figured this important spiritual doctrine out, your, your life, or the, the life of your loved ones, the lives of your loved ones, could be in serious jeopardy. I, I, I'm just saying this because that apparently is what the story of Abraham and Lot is about. Oh, man, you just can't make this stuff up. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. The first movie sermon of the summer on the movie Angry Birds. Yeah, we're, we're not going to hear a sermon. I think it's a group anger management therapy. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissyoprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook 
at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. sermon of the summer movie preaching season. Apparently God's word is way too boring to actually preach through during the summer, so we got to spice things up, you know, for those religious seekers by preaching about movies. Yeah. And, uh, well, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon? Uh, Today's group therapy anger management session comes to us via the Journey Church in New York City. Teaching Pastor Carrick Thomas presiding as he opens up the spiritual significance of that amazingly spiritual movie, Angry Birds. You think I'm jesting? Oh, no, I'm not. Yeah, apparently, uh, like I said, God's Word just won't do it anymore in the church. So we have to uh, preach through movies in order to show people how relevant we are and stuff like that. What we're about to hear will not actually be a teaching on sound doctrine regarding the doctrine of Christian sanctification and holiness, but this will be a, well session on anger management. Without any further ado, here's Carrick Thomas. Hey, well, welcome once again to the journey. I'm excited that you're here today for the kickoff of our summer teaching series, God on Film, where every Sunday this summer, we're going to be looking at one of the summer's biggest blockbuster movies and exploring the biggest spiritual theme behind each one. It's going to be a Right, because everybody knows the reason why Hollywood produces movies is for spiritual reasons, so that, you know, we can replace, you know, like the epistles and books of the Bible and stuff. One. It's going to be a lot of fun, and we're going to be challenged to grow in our faith in some really big ways as well. So I'm really glad. Yeah, how does a Hollywood movie challenge me to grow in my faith in Christ? I'm really glad that you're here because, see, here's the thing about a good movie. A good movie makes you think. A good movie makes you feel. And the best movies, the movies that stay with us, they, they cause you to feel a wide range of emotions from joy to sadness, from laughter to fear, and then even sometimes that red hot emotion of anger. And that's why today we're kicking off God on Film by looking at the new movie, Angry Birds, and how to bring the red hot, sometimes all consuming emotion of anger under control. And so that's what we're going to be talking about. Find your message notes there in your program. They look like this. Go ahead and pull those out and pull out your pen as well so you can take some notes as we we go along. And, um, you know, as we begin the series, just by a show of hands, how many of you are familiar with the Angry Birds game that is on, you know, the smartphones? How many of you have played that on your phone before? How many of you are playing it right now instead of listening to me? So put that that away. You know, the, the, the funny thing is, 
Angry Birds began as just a silly little smartphone game, but it's become its own franchise. And now there's an entire movie on the Angry Birds game. And uh, the Angry Angry Birds, uh, it stars this character whose name is Red. He's, he is the biggest of the Angry Birds. And he, along with the other birds, they live on Bird Island, but Red has an anger problem. A small one. He, he continues to lash out at others. He lashes out at others in a way that, that pushes... Now, normally this is the part in the sermon where the pastor is supposed to open up his Bible and read a biblical text. Instead, we're getting a summary in the plot line and the characters of the movie Angry Birds. That pushes them away. No one on the island likes Red. He hurts others. He hurts himself through his anger. So much so that they make him take anger management classes. And then he says things. I don't know if you can hear. He says things like... I don't think I have an anger issue. I think you got an anger issue. Yeah. And, I'm really angry. I was angry. Yeah, he's angry. So that's the point. And, and, and it continues to hurt him. But in the movie, the, the island is invaded by these little green evil pigs. And the pigs steal all of the birds' eggs because they want to make omelets. Don't ask. That's the plot of the movie. But what happens is Red's anger is what motivates the other pigs to stand up for themselves and to go and get their eggs back to save their their chicks. And so his anger, anger in, in fact, the whole movie illustrates both sides of this issue of anger. Because on one side, anger is not always bad. God gave you the emotion of anger. Anger is what helps you stand up when something is wrong, to to fight injustice. But if we're honest, most of the time when we get angry, it's not about injustice or standing up for what's wrong. Most of the time it's selfish. And we do so, we blow up in a way that hurts ourselves and hurts others. Because here's the thing. When we can't get our anger under control, it can cause some problems. Like this. Take a look. Yeah, that's right. We're not getting biblical texts. We're getting movie clips now. And now, listen, if we're honest, it's not hard for us to see some of our own issues in Angry Birds. Let us be honest, living in this... Issues or sins? Be honest, living in this city, it's hard not to lose your temper. I mean, there are 20 million of us living on top of one another, commuting to work together every morning. And now it's summer. So when you go down the subway, it's hot. We're sweaty. It's stinky. And people are rubbing up right next to you. It's hard. I mean, it's almost impossible not to, to lose your temper when you live in this city sometimes, right? Or your boss comes down on you at work or your coworkers stab you in the back or your, your roommate is being an insensitive jerk. And so your anger rises. Or your spouse is always being critical and the kids. I mean, it's like someone is literally paying the kids to make you angry. And they're doing that all the time. And so you feel your anger rising up. Now, anger is an issue that we all deal with. Now, we also all have our favorite ways of dealing with anger. And most of them aren't healthy. Let me show you the four most common unhealthy ways that we deal with anger. I call these the four angry birds. And so you can help, you can help. Yeah, what does the Bible call them? You call them the four angry birds. I don't recall the angry birds being mentioned in scripture. You can help self-diagnose which angry bird you are. The first one is the shouter. 
This is the, one, the person who makes sure everyone knows that they aren't happy. The angrier they get, the louder they get. And when they let their anger fly, it's usually with a few choice words. But then sometimes it's like throwing golf clubs into the lake or throwing a lamp across the room. They, they explode. They yell. They're a ticking time bomb. Let me ask you this. Are you a shouter? And if you are, you probably scare and intimidate those around you with your temper. And when you do that, you really push them away. So you've got the shouter. And now very different from the shouter is the one I call the powder. The powder is the person who's the life of the party. The pity party, that is. They want everyone to be sorry for them. But listen, they're far from helpless. They may not yell, but the the powder has two very powerful passive-aggressive weapons that they use effectively. One is the guilt trip. They never let you forget when you mess up or when you hurt them. Their anger comes out through the guilt trip. And then also they use sarcasm. Cutting words beneath the surface to tear you down. Now, this person doesn't explode on you like the shouter, but it slowly seeps out. Hurtful actions, cutting comments, angry looks. Let me ask you, are you the pouter? One way you can know if there's someone in your life right now who you're intentionally not talking to, guess what? You're probably a pouter. I can be a pouter sometimes. So you got the shouter, the pouter. Then thirdly, you have the rerouter. The rerouter, this is where you take your anger out on someone who has nothing to do with it. You're at work, your boss yells at you, so you just grit your teeth, you bear it, you press it down until you get home, and then you yell at your spouse. Your spouse turns around and yells at your kid. Your kid turns around and kicks the dog. Now, the dog had nothing to do with it, but they got the final kick, right? What happened? I took out my anger on someone who didn't deserve it. How many? Think about how many marriages and relationships are destroyed by rerouted anger. Do you have people in your life who say to you, hey, why are you taking this out on me? Why are you so mad at me? You might have rerouted or displaced anger. That's the rerouter. Then here's the fourth type of angry bird. Maybe the most dangerous is the doubter. The doubter. This is where someone hurts you and you pretend it's okay. You pretend you're not angry. You suppress it. You push it down. You grit your teeth. And instead of dealing with your anger or letting it out, you deny it. You're the doubter. You just push it down. And and you're on the path to bitterness and resentment, to high blood pressure. You're probably stressed out. And you probably feel the love in some of your most important relationships seeping out, uh, going away. Look, we all struggle with at least one or most of us more than one of those angry birds. Now, I'm not usually the shouter. I can be, but I can often be the powder. I can sulk in, in, in order to get my way with, with my wife. Yeah, we don't struggle with angry birds. We are all sinful. With my wife. And sometimes I can be the rerouter. Sometimes I can take out my frustration at work on my wife or, or on my kids. And I, but which one of these angry birds are you? As we begin today, I want to ask you a personal question. Do you find yourself angry all the time? Are you easily ticked off at your boss, at your spouse, at your kids, at your parents? At seeker-driven pastors who refuse to do their job and preach the word of God. Parents. Maybe they weren't there for you like they should have been. Maybe you're upset at, at a boyfriend who betrayed you and it comes out in different ways. Maybe you're angry at the church because of a bad experience you had in the past. And some of you, I mean, if you're honest, you are just angry at everything. You don't know why. Uh, but you're constantly mad and everyone around you is walking on pins and needles because you're a volcano ready to erupt at the slightest misstep. 
But I want you to look at what the Bible teaches. You've got your message notes out. If you look in your notes, we already read our memory verse. That's our key verse for this entire teaching series. But below that, you see Proverbs chapter 14, verse 29. I want us to read this out loud together with a lot of anger. Well, maybe not anger. Let's read it. Let's read it with uh, our happy voices, beginning with people. Are you ready? Go. People with understanding control their anger. A hot temper shows great foolishness. On that first line, I want you to underline those three words, control their anger. Now, I'm going to point this out, that uh, the Proverbs, great book for Christians. It is a book about Christian sanctification, if you would. But the primary uh, part of uh, Proverbs that all these guys seem to miss is that it's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, if you don't have true penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, yeah, this is all law, if you would, kind of third use of the law. This shows us what a good work is, but you cannot apply this apart from faith in Christ, which is what he's doing. We continue. Anger. Control their anger. See, it's the foolish person who loses their temper and lashes out and hurts others, but it's the wise person, the successful person, the godly person who learns how to control their anger and express it in a godly way. Look, here's the truth. Even Jesus got angry. But it was at, when Jesus got angry, it was at the right person, at the right time, for the right reason, and in the right way. Now, that's not easy to do. It's not easy to be angry. Yeah, and when you don't do that, you sin and fall short of the glory of God, and you need to repent and be forgiven for your sins. You need to be angry at the right person in the right way and express it in the right way every time, but that's our goal. And so today, let's get better at this by looking into God's Word. We're going to look at the Bible to discover four biblical keys to bringing our anger under control. All right, so Four keys to bringing our anger under control. Where does the Bible teach these four keys laid out like that? All right, so here's the first one in your notes. So whether you're a shouter, a doubter, a rerouter, or a powder, uh, this is going to help you. The first key to bringing your anger under control, number one, choose to do something about my anger. Choose to do something about my anger. This is the first step, and you can't skip it. Uh, because you've got to quit making excuses and saying that you can't control it. or that's just Now notice, he says this is step one, and you cannot skip this step. You must choose to do something about your anger. Where does the Bible teach this important step? And where does the Bible say you cannot skip this step? That's just, if you ever say this, that's just who I am. You've got to stop doing that. Anger, like any emotion you're feeling, is a choice. So understand this. When you get angry, you're choosing to get angry. No, have you ever said this? Oh, you're making me so mad. Have you ever said that? You're making me so mad. That's not true. No one can make you mad. You're choosing to get mad because anger is a choice. There, there are a dozen other appropriate responses you could give to them besides anger. Now, the good news is because anger is a choice, you can choose to control it. That's what Proverbs uh, chapter 29, verse 11 says. It says, fools vent their anger. None of us wants to be a fool, right? It says, but the wise quietly hold it back. Would you underline that last phrase, quietly hold it back? And then stay here, hold your finger here for just a moment. I want to look at this. This verse says you have a choice, that your anger is a choice. When you decide to quietly hold your anger back, you are choosing to control it. 
Now, you might be thinking, well, Carrick, you don't understand. You don't know me. You don't know that there's no way. When I get angry, there's just no way. I just explode and, and I lose it. But listen, you can hold back your anger far more than you think you can if you're properly motivated. For instance, have you ever been in an argument with your boss, with your parents, with a spouse, or maybe even your roommate, and it's getting really intense? Now, I've been in an argument with Lori before, and we were just really going at it. I'm like, I can't believe you said that. You know that I wouldn't do that. And we're just yelling at each other. I'm like, that is not true. There's no way. And then the phone rings, right? And I'm like, there's no way that that's true. Hey, how's it going? You doing okay? Yeah. Oh, I'm doing great. Yeah, I'm having a great day. And what in the world just happened there? You know, my temper was up here. I was about to, I was exploding. I was inappropriately expressing anger. And all of a sudden, I'm like, hey, everything's good. What, what happened there? I made a choice, Right. I was properly inappropriately. Would that be sinfully? I was properly motivated. I didn't want the other person to know what I had just said to my wife. I didn't want them to know that I was upset and what was going on. So I chose to hold back my anger in that situation. Here's the point. Properly motivated, you can control your anger. And so decide, you have to decide today that you want to do something about it, that you want to change, that you don't want to continue blowing up and hurting others. Whether, whether you're a shouter, a powder, a rerouter, or a doubter, you don't want to keep doing that. Now, listen, you don't make that decision in the middle of the argument. You don't make that decision when you're fired up and your adrenaline is high and your muscles are tense with anger. That's not the time to decide, do I want to get angry here or not? No, you're going to get angry then. You've got to make that decision in the peacetime. Decide right now, decide today, draw a line in the sand and say, I'm not going to keep doing that. I'm not going to keep hurting. Yeah, that'll, you know, solve the problem right there. Because everybody knows that as soon as you make a New Year's resolution, you know, like you're going to save, you know, a certain amount of money this year, or you're going to lose a certain amount of weight, or you're going to, you know, get that promotion or what. As soon as you say you're going to do it, you know, every year, those New Year's resolutions, just making that decision ensures that that's going to solve the problem. I'm not going to keep hurting myself. I'm not going to keep hurting others. Do something about your, your temper now so that when you're in that situation, you respond differently. Now, open your notes to the inside. That's the first biblical key to bringing your anger under control. Decide that you're going to do something about it. Make that decision in your heart, in your mind. Make that commitment with God. And then here's the second key. Write this down. Count the cost of my anger. Count the cost of my anger. You see, there's always a price to pay for losing your temper, but sometimes we don't see that cost until it's too late. Now, where in Scripture does it say, step one to getting your anger under control, choose to do something, step two, count the cost? Where does it say this? Too late. Take a look at this. Me? I am the last guy who should be here. Simple speeding ticket. Judge tells me I was going too fast, so I say, Your Honor, (laughs) to be honest, I was. Mm-hmm. My one problem, that's a different story than you told last time. Yeah, ouch, uh, there. Look, maybe your anger won't lead you to prison, 
But there's always a price to pay for uncontrolled anger. And listen, you're going to be less likely to lose your temper when you understand how high that price can be. The Bible is very specific about... Now, are you talking about hell, you know, for, you know, continuing impenitently in your sin and not being forgiven? Is that what you're talking about, the cost? Specific about the cost of uncontrolled anger. Proverbs 29, 22. It says, an angry person starts fights. You know, they, they hurt relationships with one another. Then it says, a hot-tempered person commits all kinds of sin. In other words, there's an impact on your relationship with God there as, as well. I mean, you and I, we can all share a story about someone that we've seen who got into trouble or destroy a relationship or lose something that they cared about, maybe even their job, because of their anger. There's some very real dangers when it comes to anger. And I've listed some of them there in your notes. I call it the danger of anger. I have four of them there. The first one, anger causes physical problems. Physical problems. I mean, have you ever heard, one, ever heard someone say, that just burns me up? It just burns me up? Well, there's some truth to it because anger burns you up from the inside out. It, it, can, it can really hurt you. And um, so you, you have their physical problems. I mean, do you know what the, the number one selling medication in the United States is? It's antacids. Rolades, Tums, uh, for heartburn and related issues. And a lot of it, I think, is caused by unresolved anger. Anger. Yeah, where, where are you getting that? I mean, a lot of people suffer from acid reflux, and it has a lot more to do with their diet than it does unresolved anger. Anger that's not dealt with causes stress. It causes high blood pressure. We can literally kill ourselves with anger. Look, it's not just what you're eating that's killing you. It's what's eating at you that's killing you. So we need to do something about it. It'll, it'll kill you physically. That's the first danger. The second one, uh, anger causes emotional problems. I mean, think about it. When was the last time someone really yelled at you? I mean, really let you have it. I bet you remember it. And I bet you not only remember it, I bet you've replayed it and rehashed it in your mind over and over again, whether it happened months ago or even years ago. Because anger can cut deep. It can wound we all have scars that were caused by anger. And so anger causes physical and emotional problems. Then it can cause relational problems. You see, anger is dangerous because it divides people. With your anger, you push people away from yourself. It can break up relationships. It can end marriages. Unresolved anger leads to bitterness and resentfulness. And you don't want that. And then here's the fourth danger of anger, spiritual problems. Spiritual problems. You see, our anger can separate us from God. It can put, when we have sin in our life... And, and this is where it's backwards. The reason why we have anger is because we are sinful by nature. Yeah, this, is, this guy is treating sin, sin as if it's... Uh, well, it, it, the reason why you're a sinner is because you sin. No, the reason you sin is because you are a sinner. Ugh. Life and anger is inappropriate. It puts a distance between us and God. And then sometimes we even get angry with God, don't we? We don't get what we pray for from God. Life doesn't go the way that we want it to. We get angry with God and it causes us to turn our backs on God. But listen, uncontrolled anger is also dangerous because it's Satan's favorite tool to use in our lives. Look at what Ephesians 4, 27 says. It's there in your notes. It says, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. That's strong language, isn't it? You know, it says, when I have uncontrolled anger, when I lose my temper, 
I'm not in control. So when I lose my temper, I lose control of my anger, I'm not in control. Who is in control? The verse says, the devil is. Satan takes control and I make bad decisions. I I do dumb things. I say dumb things. Notice every verse out of context. Say dumb things. All because I lost control of my temper. I lost control and Satan took control. Now I want you to look back at these four dangers of anger. There's some big consequences when you don't control your anger. The point is, you always lose when you lose your temper. You lose the respect of others. You may lose the love of those who you care about the most. You can lose the love of your spouse or your children. And let me just take a moment. I want to talk to those of you who are here who are parents for a moment. Why is it so easy for us? I'm a parent of three. Why is it so easy for us to uh, use anger to motivate our children? Why do we rant and we rave to get them to do what we want them to? Can I tell you why? Because it works, right? You know, we get angry and they're not doing what we want. Then they do what we want. And it works in the short term though. See, you can scare your kids and you can scare even most adults into doing anything you want them to if you raise your voice. Through your anger, you can make your children comply. But listen, you're going to lose in the long run because your anger is going to alienate them. It's going to push them away. And guess what? You're you're also setting a model that they're going to replicate in their life later on. Listen, I'm as guilty of this as anyone. It was a couple of months ago, I was getting our kids ready for school. I've got an eight-year-old and six-year-old twins. I was getting them ready for school. And just in my defense, they were being really bad. I mean, they had made a mess. They weren't getting dressed. We were late. They were fighting with each other. They were talking back to me. And finally, I had it, and I just started yelling at them. I'm like, we're going to go right now. And I just got on them, and I yelled at them. I got them ready. We were out the door, and I was just mad. And we're walking to school. And every day when we walk to school, I'm like holding their hands, and we always pray on the walk to school. And uh, have you ever done that? You try to talk to God when you've done something that you know was really wrong. It's really hard to do. And we're walking to school and all of a sudden I'm about to pray. And God just sort of hits me in the gut about what a jerk I had just been. My kids aren't saying anything. You know, I, 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 I scared them into submission. And we stopped along that, on that sidewalk. And I got down on my knees and I apologized. I said, guys, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have yelled like that. I, I, will, will you forgive me? I messed up. Will you forgive me? And they each said, yeah, we'll forgive you, Daddy. And my little girl, Sydney, said, Daddy, you were grouchy, Daddy, this morning. I'm like, I, I know I was grouchy. She said, well, you yelled at me. I'm like, I know I yelled at you. And you were yelling at, I'm like, if you don't want to see grouchy Daddy come back, you're going to stop talking <laughs> right now, Sydney, and, and, and let's go to school. But we all, I mean, we can all struggle with this. Look at, look at the next verse, Ephesians 6, 4. This is specifically to us guys, to fathers, but it, it applies just as well to moms as well. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Remember, there's always a cost to anger. And if you don't think about it, if you don't count the cost first, you're going to pay for it later. So go ahead and flip your notes over. And, and by the way, guys, I mentioned this earlier, but two weeks from today, it's Father's Day. But for us at The Journey, we're celebrating all guys, just like we did on Mother's Day. We celebrated all women. It's Real Man's Day. We're going to be looking uh, at the movie Independence Day. We're going to look at a guy from the Bible named Samson. It's going to be a really... <laughs> really Independence Day? The mo- it's going to be a really It's going to be a really great day. But I just want to say this about being a real godly man. A godly man, a real man knows how to control their anger. And I'm not just talking, of course, physical violence is never acceptable, but even in the way you use your words. 
A godly man knows how to control their anger and use it in a godly way. Well, across the page in your notes, here's the third biblical key to bringing my anger under control. Number three, calm down and pray before responding. Calm down and pray before responding. I mean, how many times have you said or done something in anger and only five minutes later you're thinking, oh man, why in the world did I do that? Why did I say that? And you know, if I had just thought about it, that I would definitely have done something different. Well, see, that's why you need to calm down and pray before you react in anger. Before- now, let me remind you, apparently there's four steps to getting your anger under control. The first is choose to do something about your anger. Second is count the cost. And then three, calm down and pray before responding. My question again, where are these four keys taught in order like this? How did he find out that these are the four keys to uh, overcoming and, well, getting your anger under control? In anger. Before you send that text, before you send that tweet, before you post something on Facebook or send that email, think about it. Thomas Jefferson once said, if you're angry, count to 10. If you're still angry, count to 100. If you're still angry after that, just keep on counting. I think that's wise advice. And here's how the Bible says it in Psalm chapter 4, verse 4. It says, don't sin by letting anger control you. Think about it overnight and remain silent. Underline the, the, the three words, think about it. I think that's the key phrase for us today, think about it. And th- this is so hard because when you feel anger creeping up, it's difficult to stop and delay whatever your response is, is going to be. Now, I need to note this fact. Um, at Psalm 4, verse 4, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. That's what it says in the ESV, which is a good translation. Clearly, he was reading from the message paraphrase. Notice every verse taken out of context, and now he's shoehorning Psalm 4, verse 4 from the message paraphrase to somehow fit into his step three. You've got to follow these steps if you want to get your anger under control. Again, really, you know, if you've got an anger issue, where on earth in the Bible does it lay out these four steps to get your anger under control? I feel like he's selling us something. We continue. To be. But listen, that's what the mature person does. They count to 10. They count to 100. They keep on counting. They don't say the first thing that comes to mind. They don't fire off that email. They don't send that tweet. They, they sleep on it first. See, when you start to get angry, more than anything else, you need to calm down, pray, and delay your response. Buy some time. Take a step back and pray uh, for God's help. In fact, our next verse is a great prayer for you to, uh, to learn and actually to pray this week. Let's read it together. Psalm 141.3, beginning with take control. Are you ready? Go. Take control of what I say, O Lord, and guard my lips. I think this is a great prayer for all of us to pray this week. When you're in the heat of the moment, when you feel your anger rising... Pray this simple prayer. Just say, God, I'm getting angry right now. I need your help. So take control of what I say and guard my lips. God, in this moment, in this meeting, in this confrontation, take control of what I say and guard my lips. If you do that and you pray, God is going to help you in that that situation. He'll give you wisdom. Now, after you get past that initial rush of, uh, of anger... I want you to, to, I left you some space in your notes. I want you to ask yourself three quick questions. And uh, I gave you some space to write them down. Here are the three questions. Number one, why? Ask yourself why. 
Why am I angry? Try to determine the root cause. Is it hurt? Is it fear? Is it frustration? There's always a source. That's an important question for me to ask. Because the question is, am I angry because someone is being unfair to me? Or am I angry because of my own fears, my own insecurities? And when I ask this question, most of the time, honestly, it's me. I'm the reason for the anger. But ask, why am I angry? Second question, what? What? What do I really want the outcome of this confrontation to be? I mean, do I want revenge? Now, trust me, revenge is not what you want. That only brings uh, uh, more fighting. It takes you further away from God. You don't want revenge. You want resolution. And so what is it that you want? What would make you happy? So why, then what, and then finally how? How can I best get what I want? Let me tell you, it's not going to be through sarcasm. It's not going to be through pouting. It's not going to be through exploding in anger. Here's, here's what the Bible says about how you get resolution. In James, in the New Testament, chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, it says, Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Wow, I mean, if we just did these three things, I mean, we would, we would be pretty good. We could close our Bibles and go home. In fact, let's read that first line, just that first line out loud together, beginning with be quick. Are you ready? Go. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Now notice, uh, you know, the problem is you're sinning. God's law shows that you're sinning. So the solution is you applying these four magical keys that apparently Carrick Thomas found so that you can just, you know, fix it right up. So it's the prop the law diagnoses the problem and the the law gives you the solution to the problem. No repentance, no forgiveness of sins, no bearing fruit in keeping repentance. It's just applying principles and tips and techniques and keys to your life and then voila, you apparently no longer have a problem. This is not how the Bible teaches us how to mortify our sinful natures. Angry. And then look what he says. Your anger can never make things right in God's sight. Look, you're more likely to get what you really want without hurting yourself, without pushing others away. If before you let your anger out, you calm down, you pray, and you think rationally. And so let's review. To bring my anger under control, I choose to do something about my anger. I count the cost of my anger. I need to calm down and pray before I respond in anger. And then on the back of your notes... This is a big one because unless you take this final step, you'll never fully get your anger under control. Here's number four. Commit my life to God. Commit my life to God. Because look, you're not going to get control of your anger on your own. There's no way that you can change a lifelong pattern of inappropriate anger just by saying, I'm going to try harder today. I mean, I'm going to try harder this week. And you know this, right? Because if you could have changed the pattern of... Yeah, this sounds so pious. But, you know, again, where in the Bible does it teach these four steps? Choose to do something about your anger, count the cost, calm down, pray, and then commit your life to God. Where in the scripture does it promise if you do those four things that you're really going to start getting your anger under control? the pattern of anger, you'd have done it already. You'd have made those changes, but you tried it and you failed. And that's why you need God's help. And here's why. Because your anger that you're expressing, it's not really an anger issue at all. It's really at its root, a heart issue. It's an issue of the heart. I want you to look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. And Jesus says, for whatever is in your heart, 
determines what you say. Now think about what Jesus is saying here for a moment. Whatever is in your heart determines what you say. Think about the implications for anger here. He says that the heart of the problem is really a problem of the heart. Right, and out of the heart comes all kinds of sin. This is dealing and addressing our sinful natures. Heart. That the heart of the issue is really just an issue of the heart. With anger, the problem isn't my mouth. With anger, the, the, the issue really is my heart. See, my words betray what's really on the inside of my heart. My anger reveals the sin on the inside. My anger reveals my insecurity. Now notice he is now talking about it as if it's a sin. That's a, an improvement in the sermon. My insecurities, my thoughts, and, and all of the darkness that is there in my heart that I've so carefully tried to keep hidden from the world. That, that mask I put over so other people couldn't see what was on, on the inside. My anger reveals what's on the inside. Now I hear people say all the time, man, you know what? I, I know I lost my temper there. I know I exploded. I, I let it out. But hey, just understand, Carrick, that's not really who I am. You know, I lost it there, but that's not, really not who I am. No, that is really who you are. That is really who I am. You see, on the inside, in my heart, it's those moments when we're tested, when we're irritated, when we're pushed to the edge, when we let our guard down. That's when what's really on the inside that we keep so carefully hidden from everyone else that it pours out, it unleashes on others, and they see really what's going on in our heart. We let others see the ugly that's on the inside. And sometimes, let's be honest, it is ugly on the inside. Sometimes in my heart... Yeah, it is. And it's ugly on the inside for all of us because all of us have a sinful nature. Sometimes in my heart, it's really ugly on the inside. Look, I know that there's some of you here right now and you're dealing with a heart problem. You get angry a lot and you're miserable and you're making others miserable. And it's causing you to hurt those you care about. And maybe you have a marriage, a friendship, maybe even a job. This is where it would be good to talk about how Christ has bled and died for our sins. And bled and died for all of that muck on the inside of us. A job that's on the brink because of your anger right now. I want you to know today that there's hope. You don't have to keep living with these angry birds. You don't, you don't have to continue to be controlled by your anger. Look at what Colossians 3, 5 says. It's there in, in your notes. It's from the New Testament of the Bible. And it says this, and let the peace, I want you to circle that word peace. Because here's the thing, God wants... You're starting a, a, in a verse that begins with the word and, which means that's a conjunction and there's more to it than this. Why are you ripping this passage out of context? Why don't you preach the gospel from Colossians, especially like... Colossians chapter 1 or chapter 2, you know, places like that, and tell us about what Christ has done for us. God wants to replace the anger that's in your heart, and he wants to put his peace in your heart in its place. And so he says, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. See, what you really need... Yeah, and that only can be done by a Christian. What you really need isn't anger management like Red had to go to. Uh, because that really isn't going to work. It's much deeper than that. You need a heart transplant. You need a new heart. Now, this is true. This is absolutely true. You need a new heart. And I know where you can get one. His name is Jesus Christ. And he specializes in heart transplants. And all the therapy, all the anger management, all the self-help books in the world, yeah, they can help you a little bit. They can help you for a time. But they can never give you a new heart. Look, I don't know why you're angry today. I don't know if you were rejected. 
you know, it sounds like you're you're making it, you know, a, a new heart is like, oh, one of the benefits, like, hey, you, you want to make a decision for Jesus? Well, let me tell you about the things that you'll get when you make that decision. One of them is a new heart. Yeah, no, we got a problem here. You need to preach law and gospel correctly, and you still haven't actually preached the gospel. You were rejected as a child or as an adult or you you had to face abuse or if you feel in love or if you tried something in life and you failed. Maybe right now life seems hard. Maybe it seems unfair. But I want you to know that God sees your pain. And no one in this world cares more about your pain, cares more about you, cares more about what you're going through right now than God. You matter to him. You just went from making them perpetrators to being victims only. Again, the gospel is for sinners. Christ died for the ungodly. You need to keep it on them as having actually transgressed God's law. to him, And right now, he can replace that hurt and that anger in your heart with his peace. That stuff you've been pushing down. He wants to give you his peace, his presence, and his power in your heart. I want you to imagine for a moment what your life and your relationships might be like if you would commit your life, if you would commit your... Just imagine, if you would just commit. This is a sales technique. Feel like we're buying a timeshare or something. If you would commit your anger to God, if you let Him do a work on your heart, uh, commit my anger. How about confess my sinfulness, the sins that I've committed in my anger to God, and ask for Jesus to forgive me? You notice the difference. Your heart. If you let Him replace your anger with His peace. Imagine if you're married, what your marriage could be like if instead of exploding in anger at your spouse, you were expressing love. Imagine what your career could be like if instead of snapping at your coworkers, you were showing kindness to them. Yeah, and imagine the dissatisfaction when people say, well, I made the commitment to God and I still have anger. I, I thought you said Jesus was going to replace that with peace. When is he going to do his part? I did mine. Kindness to them in every instance. Imagine what your relationships could be like with your friends or with your roommates if people thought you cared about them instead of feeling like they had to walk around you on pins and needles afraid of how you were going to explode if they messed up. Listen, if you're already a follower of Jesus, understand you've already got a new heart. You don't have to be controlled by anger. And we're going to pray in a moment. And I'm going to ask you to give your anger to God, to ask him to replace that anger. Yeah, notice they're not confessing their sins. They're giving their anger. What's Jesus going to do with that? Anger in your heart with his peace, because you don't have to keep living with it. Give it to him. Trust him with it. But listen, if you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I'm going to ask you today to give God more than just your anger. I'm going to ask you to commit your life to God for the very first time today. I want you to ask God for a new heart, for a heart transplant, for a change from the inside out. He promises he'll give that to you. 2 Corinthians 5.17, it's our last verse. Let's read it out loud together, beginning with this means. Are you ready? Go. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Let me ask, are you ready to do something about your anger? Are you ready to be a new person? Are you ready to live a new life? If so, as we pray here in just a moment, I want you to give your heart, your anger, your entire life to God. Would you bow your heads with me right now? And let's pray. Yeah, no, I'm going to pass. So so here's the thing. Movie sermon. There's your first problem. Yeah, this isn't a biblical text that we're dealing with. All the verses out of context. The claim that there are four keys to 
overcoming your anger found in the scripture when those four keys are never taught in this way. Uh, basically, what we got was anger management with a commit yourself to God portion at the end of it, and not a real confession of sins or a receiving of the forgiveness of your sins, which, you know, out of control anger crosses the line into sinful behavior that needs to be repented of, that needs to be forgiven. And the Christian needs to be taught how Scripture teaches us how to mortify our sinful flesh and bear fruit in keeping with this, with well, with the Spirit and keeping with repentance. And we didn't get any of that. And that was just, well, a hot mess of nothing. And that's what you get when you abandon the preaching of the Word of God in order to be relevant by preaching on movies and trying to find the spiritual component in them, which really wasn't there at all. What would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you. And the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ is vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to be able to identify those prophets for profit who fall under the error of Balaam and that were warned about in the New Testament. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and the world. You can partner with us. That's right. It's a partnership. Uh, we do the hard work of doing the research, putting the programs together, and uh, you know, producing them, recording them, and then getting them out and distributing them. And you partner with us by helping us be able to meet our needs, pay our bills. And uh, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute well an amount that you get to choose. That's right. There's four ranks in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month, Gunner's Mate $24.95 a month, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. These, this is a great way to support us, by the way. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, we're still going to do some prophetic holy orders stuff. Well, let's go ahead and play some more music just to kind of get into it. Here we go. Down at an English fair, one evening I was there. When I heard a showman shouting underneath the flare. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. There they are, standing in a row. Big one, small one, some as big as your head. Give them a twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the showman said. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. Every 
every ball you throw will make me rich. There stands me wife, the idol of me life, singing roly bowly ball a penny a pitch. Singing roly bowly ball a penny a pitch. Singing roly bowly ball a penny a pitch. Roly bowly ball, roly bowly ball, singing roly bowly ball a penny a pitch. Yeah, that's right. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. So we're heading over to Sean Bulls's church. Expression. 58. Expression 58. I'm not even sure what that means. And we're going to be listening to one of the teaching prophetesses there. Her name is Jennifer Toledo. And I think this is a great example of somebody, well, soaking in the oil of nonsense. Here we go. So we're going to jump in uh, this morning. Uh, We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, if you want to kind of get ready. We're not going to get there quite yet to a little bit more down... uh, a little bit later, but that's where we're going to be. First Peter chapter two. Um, a few weeks ago, we talked, we took a couple weeks and we talked about the Beatitudes yeah. and in, in talking about the Beatitudes, you know, really looking at how kingdom people live. But the part that really stuck out to me was that the, at the end, after the Beatitudes, it talks about how we're called to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth, Right. Right? That was zero response. I mean, not even like one person with me. Okay, are we tracking? Well, let me check the text here. So uh, Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, uh, it says in uh, verse 2, opened his mouth and taught his disciples, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how is how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Do nor do people light a lamp, put it under a basket on a, uh, but put it on a stand and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All right? Now, so the light of the world thing, okay, that Jesus is referring to, what is the light? The light is our good works as Christians, which, of course, begs the question, well, how does the Bible, how do scriptures well, how do they describe, define a good work? Good works ultimately come down to obeying the Ten Commandments. And that means not just what you don't do, but also what you do. And a good way to look at that would be to look at the, like the back end of the epistle to the Ephesians, right? And the good works are laid out in the different vocations that we're in as husband, as wife, as father, mother, employer, employee. I say that because 
slave and master that you know, you know we, we we don't have slavery in the United States or in western civilization although slavery still exists in the world the idea then being is that uh, we glorify God and do our good works in the vocations that God has put us into so back in the day uh, slaves who didn't own themselves who were Christians and Christianity very early on uh, you know really took off among the lower classes and the slave class in uh, in the Roman Empire. This is a fact of history. So how does a slave do good works? I mean, well, answer, slaves obey your masters. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. These are our good works. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says our good works are a light to the world. All right, so we did a little bit of biblical exegesis with some cross-reference work here. We have a generally good idea of what's going on in the in the text that she's referencing. Let's see where Jennifer Toledo goes with this. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm like, right. Um, <clears throat> this is who we are. And there's something about this that has just so stuck with me. I haven't been able to shake it. And and I'm just going to, sh- I wanted to share a little bit from my heart this morning. What I Yeah, I'm not interested in hearing anything from your heart. Yeah, no, whatever's in your heart, that, yeah, no, God and the Bible and Jesus says that it's out of the heart that comes all kinds of sin and muck and stuff. And, uh, and you know, the heart is deceitfully wicked. You know, I think of passages like that. So when a pastor or a prophetess stands up and says, I want to share what's on my heart, Run away. Yeah, nothing Nothing good is going to happen next. Morning, what I really feel like God is saying to us, but I want to just read that part. It's Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's right. See your what? Your good works. That's the reference to the light. Got it? And there's just something in this that's just... I haven't been able to escape, and I feel like God is is saying something to us. Mm-hmm. What do you think God's saying? Us. I believe that E58 is destined to be a brilliant light. E58, expression 58. Not the church, but their specific, unique congregation. Yeah. Okay, E58, the home of Sean Bowles, the... The uh, the guy who gives words of knowledge using a smartphone, right? Yeah. A city on a hill. Yeah. A community, a people gathered that hold light. Now, remember, this is when Jesus is talking about this. This is pre-electricity, okay? Right. So yeah. when he's talking about light, he's he's talking about flame, well, yeah, that's true. He wasn't talking about LEDs or compact fluorescence or, you know, any of those types of things. No, he clearly he was talking about flames, yeah. We're called to be flame, fire. He's talking about lamps. That was their context. 
People use lamps. He's talking about a wick soaking in oil. Yeah, see, this is... <laughs> you're putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable here, uh, Jennifer. See, here's the point. When Jesus says, you're the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, that's the metaphor, all right? That, that he, he, Jesus is using an analogy. So you... You, the question is, what is the analogy pointing to? What is its reference that it's referencing? The, see, the thing is, you're exegeting the analogy and the metaphor. Jesus said, good works are, that's the thing that the metaphor is pointing to, are, are good works. So, yeah, you're, you're, you're really kind of missing the whole point here. It doesn't matter if it's a flame, a halogen bulb, LED, or you know any other type of thing like that, that's not the point. That's the metaphor. The reality is the good works. You see, a lamp cannot create its own fire, its own light. A lamp can only hold it. A lamp can only hold light, can only stay soaking in the oil. Right, that's our job to stay soaking in the oil, the oil of his. Yeah, are are you are you soaking in the oil? Yeah, I mean that is not what Jesus was talking about. <laughs> oh man, this is a mess. The oil of his spirit, the oil of his presence, and from that place we we carry his light, we reflect his light, we hold his light, and there's something about this that keeps. Stirring in me, it's this concept of a city on a hill because we were talking about this isn't just one person's light. This is, you're not a city on a hill with one light. This is all of us being lit, all of us learning how to carry the presence and linking together that makes our light so brilliant, so bright that it penetrates darkness for so far. You see, there's something he's calling us to do. I mean, it's, and you hear it in Matthew 5. Um, yeah, it's good works. Hello. <laughs> uh, just absurd. I mean, it's like she's missing the forest because of a tree here, you know. Um, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Right. You just read it. I mean, I feel like we need to play that game. You know, you know when I was a kid, my, you know, my, my babysitters and, you know, those who are older than me, they like to play the game where they would hide something and you had to go find it and they go, Oh, you're cold. No, now you're freezing. Oh, you're getting warmer. Oh, you're burning hot. Yeah, yeah, we need to play that game with uh, Jennifer here because right now she just read it, and it's like, you're burning hot, Jennifer. You just said it. Good works. That's the point. That's the thing that Jesus is talking about. The metaphor of light is not the point. It's the good works. Is in heaven. What does it look like when, when you begin to let your light shine and I begin to let my light shine for real before others? Yeah, clearly she's not one of the brighter bulbs when it comes to exegesis. <clears throat> Pun intended. This whole concept, I'm just going to let my, you know, this little light of mine in my closet. Like, no. This little light of yours is supposed to be in a really scary, vulnerable place on top of a hill. <laughs> man <laughs> that's what jesus was saying man yeah you know you need to take your 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 flame and you need to put it in a scary vulnerable place on a hill 
<laughs> oh, man, this is ridiculous. The hill for everybody to watch. You doing your good works. This isn't coming from pride. This isn't coming from. Okay. Wow. She's, she's burning up now. She's, she's, she's in the ballpark. It has something to do with good works. Right. Coming from, you know, Ooh, look at me. It's going to actually take great humility and courage and surrender to do this. What are you talking about? To allow ourselves, allow the world to watch our lives, to put the good news on display, to put our good deeds on display for the world to see. Right. I mean, this, all you got to do is live your life. I mean, you got a job out in the secular world, your good works are going to shine. How can they not? Right. We continue. See why? Because what happens when that light goes into the darkness? It shifts everything. You see, we, I think sometimes we make darkness like it's this big, scary thing. Darkness is simply the absence of light. Okay. The only reason something's dark is because the light is not there. Right. Now, I don't know what happens at your house, but when I turn my light switch on, there's not like this epic bloody battle between darkness and light. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) Same thing in my house. Yeah. Even in North Dakota. Right? There is no battle. Like, it's just gone. It, ha- it just, it doesn't even exist. Darkness doesn't exist when light is present. There's no bloody battle. Like, it's just gone. Darkness is simply the absence of light. Yet we are the light. What would happen if, you know, one third of the planet that professes to be Christians, one third, aka everybody go home and just get two people saved and we're done, right? Like, that's all we got to do. One third of the planet who professes to be Christians actually started letting their light shine. So there's a third of the planet, you know, who are Christians and they don't do a single good work. If only they would just let their light shine. They're too busy doing any good works. James says that faith without works is dead. So, I mean, can you point me to those Christians who have zero good works. I'd like to meet those people. There is no darkness. Darkness has to surrender. It just, it has to go away when light's present. Right. Yeah. And so this is what I feel like God is, is really calling us to do. Good works, you know, like husbands loving your wives as Christ has loved the church. Yeah. That's an important thing right there. Uh Uh-huh. Or wives submitting to your husbands, children obeying your parents, slaves obeying your masters, and masters not treating your your slaves harshly. Yeah, I think employer employees here, right? Yeah. We're called to be the light, yes, but even more, we're called to be the light together. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of darkness. Very little light in this attempt at exegesis on the part of Jennifer Toledo. I think you get the point. I mean, this is bizarre, absolutely bizarre. It's like I don't even think she knows what she's talking about because clearly she's not even be, she's not even qualified. In fact, not only is she not qualified, she's forbidden by Scripture to be doing the thing that she's doing right now that we're actually listening to. 
Strange, indeed. Yeah, it's an example of the blind leading the blind or the dark leading the darkness into the dark. Right, yeah, that's how that works. All right, moving along, we have a vision casting leader update, and so that requires us to do this. So we're heading over to Venue Church, and Tavner Smith, this is a guy who, oh man, I, <laughs> let's just put it this way. He is a firm disciple of Stephen Furtick and Perry Noble and guys like that, and wow, the guy has no clue whatsoever how to handle a biblical text, and uh, he's, uh, well, quite the astute Narsajit himself. We're going to be learning from Tavner about how to have a next-level mindset. Yeah, if you've never had one of those next-level mindsets, well, then you're in for a treat because this will be quite the teaching. 
It won't be what the Bible teaches, but it'll be quite the teaching. Here's Tabner Smith to explain. Hey guys, listen, I am so excited about this brand new series. We are that church. They is that church. Okay, yeah. I've been uh, looking in my Bible at the book of Acts, which is a story of the first church that started after Jesus Christ ascended from the earth and gave his disciples the Holy Spirit to carry with them and make his name famous. And as I'm reading about it, yeah, I thought Acts was how the church, not a church, got started. See the difference there? Yeah, it's kind of important. Thinking about it, one of the first things that happened is Peter preached the message of Pentecost, and in one day, 3,000 people came to know Christ and got baptized in one day. And then right after that, there's a verse I want to read in chapter 2, verse 46. It says this. It says, They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity. Yeah. And all the while they praised God, enjoying the goodwill of all the people. Now listen to this. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Man, we are going to find some great things through the book of Acts in this series that God did through his first church. Yeah, again, the the book of Acts is about the growth of the church, not a specific congregation. You see what I'm saying here? And here's what this series is about. The reason he was able to do all the great things we're going to read about is because frequently throughout the book, it talks about how each and every person in that church was of the same mind. Uh, see, the only way God can work is, well... If you're of the same mind with other people. If you're not of the same mind, well, you know, God's hands are tied and he can't work. Right. Says no biblical text anywhere. Mind. They were all rallied around the same vision. Some places it says they spoke the same language. They talked about the same stuff. They believed in the same mission. Really, really uh, uh, where is the great mission and vision statement given for this first church in the book of Acts? I, I'm a little curious. Isn't it weird that Tavner Smith thinks the book of Acts is about a particular megachurch? Apparently, it was a multi-site before technology made that possible. And everybody was united around the vision uh-huh, and, and the mission for that multi-site church <laughs> wow mission they were all on board with the same goal and it was not about themselves it was about building his church and making his name famous well guess what i believe that we are that church we are yeah see venue not not you know the church in general not the church but a church called venue church is that church right yeah okay we are that church in the in the year of the 2000s, and we are going to bring a fresh revival, a fresh sound, a fresh view of the name that is lifted above all names to people when they watch what has happened at Venue Church. If we're going to do that, we all have to be speaking the same language. We yeah, they, they want to bring a fresh revival there at Venue. Yeah, it, it's ground zero for like the whole 2000s is is venue church. Yeah, and you if you want to be a part of it, then you got to be united behind Tavner's vision.
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Language. We all have to be rallied around the same vision, and we all have to be believing for the same thing. Yeah, otherwise, you know, you're not all believing for the same thing and united around the same vision. Well, God's hands are tied, and you can't do nothing, you know. That's what this series is going to be about. And today I wanted to intro it by sharing a message I've already preached to you before. As I was praying about this and I was watching this message back for myself, I just felt like it was a key moment that everybody who has heard it before and all the new people who have never heard it, it was a key moment that we needed to rally around this vision once again. So I thought there was no better way than to start this series off really strong by sharing a message that I preached called Here We Grow. So I hope you enjoy it, and I'll be back to talk to you soon. Adam, roll that footage. And it made me begin to think about people, about us, about you and me, because a lot of people get to a place in their life that they call here. It's something that... Yeah, have you gotten to the place in your life that you call here? Yeah, I mean, that could, that could be bad, I think. It's something that they dreamed about. It's something that they hoped for. It's something that they wanted. And then when they get there, a lot of times they are satisfied. They want to stay there. They get comfortable. They get in their comfort zone. And, and they just live their entire life or years of their life in this one little area. It reminded me of a story in the Bible about a guy named Abraham. And Abraham, God came to him and said, I want you to go. He didn't even tell him where. He just said, go. Abraham said, where? He said, don't worry about that. I'll tell you when you're getting close. I want you to pay. What? (laughs) Where is that in the book of Genesis? Where am I going? Oh, don't worry about it, Abraham. We're going to play the game of (laughs) hot, cold, freezing, (laughs) warm, yeah, so Abraham, he, he starts heading north out of Ur of the Chaldees, and God goes, oh, you're getting cold. You're getting, oh, now you're freezing. And and so Abraham goes, well, you won't tell me where I'm supposed to go. Try a different direction, Abraham. Okay, I'll, I'll try west. Well, you're, you're kind of getting warmer, but man, it's still cold outside. All right, south, southwest. Oh, now, now you're really getting warm. Oh, you're getting hot. Oh, keep going that way. What on earth? I want you to pack up your family and move. And Abraham got going and he had his nephew with him named Lot. And their family grew so big that they had to split up and part ways. And and here's what what caught my, my attention was this. If you read that story, you'll read later about how Abraham became super successful and how Lot had to be rescued from the town of Sodom and Gomorrah that God was destroying. What is the difference? Two people in the same family, on the same mission, they split up. What is the difference? Why was Abraham so successful and Lot ended up almost being destroyed in a town? Do you know why? Um, no, I, I don't. Why? There's something that I noticed. It's that... Lot chose to build a house in a season of his life he was meant to set up a tent. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, finally, the mystery is solved. I mean, exegetes for years have been racking their brain on this one. And finally, God is revealed to Tabner Smith 
the reason why things went so poorly for Lot is that he wanted to build a house during a tent dwelling season. <laughs> you just can't make this stuff up. Yeah. What do you mean, Pastor Tabner? If you read the story, Abraham, he sets up a camp. Yeah, he sets yeah. tents up because they were mobile, because he knew that God is moving me and that even though I'm going to be here for a season, I'm not going to be here forever. And so I am not going to build a house in a place where I'm supposed to only set up a tent and be ready when God says to move. Lot, on the other hand... Yeah, don't you think that's kind of odd? I mean, that no other exegete has ever... I mean, ever really thought this way until you came along. I mean, no biblical text actually teaches this doctrine. Can't find it in the writings of the church fathers. And um, this is a new one. Uh, yeah, the the great, yeah, don't build a house during a tw- tent dwelling season doctrine. Right. On the other hand, said, you know what? This place looks kind of comfy. I'm going to build a house no matter what God wants me to do. And he built a house in the wrong town. And him building the house in the wrong town almost cost him his life. It did cost him his wife's life. And it messed. Yeah, that if you build a house during a tent dwelling season, yeah, you, you, you could die. Right. Messed things up for him. And today I just want to talk to you because I want you to know that as far as God has brought venue to this point, venue being us, uh, we, the church, venue, not the building, not the title. The church is not a building, it's the people. I'm talking about us. As far as God has brought venue, us, the people, and venue, the organization, I don't want us to build a house in a place where God only wanted us to set up a tent because he's not done. I don't want... Right, yeah. Wow, that's some practical preaching right there, yeah. So, I mean, the important question to be asking yourself right now is, um, have you built a house when you should be dwelling in a tent? I mean, because, you know, if you haven't figured this important spiritual doctrine out, your your life, or the, the life of your loved ones, the lives of your loved ones, could be in serious jeopardy. I, I, I'm just saying this because that apparently is what the story of Abraham and Lot is about. Oh, man, you just can't make this stuff up. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at... Quick break when we come back. The first movie sermon of the summer on the movie Angry Birds. Yeah, we're, we're not going to hear a sermon. I think it's a group anger management therapy. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. 